Hello, this is the Pod Goblin's Hat podcast about the Moomins. This is episode four, which is about plagues of grasshoppers, stilt walking, and how wonderful home is. I'm Nina, a person who enjoys climbing down cliffs. And I'm Dave, a person who knows the perils of a cast pebble. And we're reading all the way through Tuve Janssen's Moomin's books together. It's the first time for me. Whereas if I wrote my memoirs, the Moomin's would be featured pretty regularly. We're starting by reading the storybooks for children in order of publication, and eventually we will cover all of Tuve Janssen's Moomin's stories. Today we're reading the second half of Comet in Moominland. Yay! We're still reading it through the themes of relationships and omens. So last week we left the Moomins having just visited the observatory at the top of the Lonely Mountain and found out that the comet will be arriving in four days. And they're all rushing home to tell Moomin Mama, who will definitely know what to do. Moomin Troll had also picked up an ankle ring, which belongs to the fabled Snork Maiden who we've yet to meet, but we've heard lots about. Moomin Troll's done lots of imaginings of... So they start walking down the mountain, they're feeling quite wretched, the sky is still looking ominous. Sniff feels sick and decides he needs a rest. Snuffkin and Moomin Troll decide to roll some boulders down the mountain for fun. So they do that a bit. Um, And then obviously Moomin Troll falls down after one of the boulders and is only rescued by the fact that he's tied to Sniff and Snuffkin. Moomin Troll's really heavy, but they do manage to haul him back over the ledge and they continue walking down and they're in a slightly worse mood now. That's one of my favourite bits from this book, I think. Like, it's one of the bits that always sticks in my head, the idea of rolling a stone off the top of a mountain and not realising that that might have some ramifications. (laughs) I thought it was a tiny pebble, but it's a rock from the start. fully boulders. Boulders, yeah, full (laughs) boulders. I sort of thought it was a pebble that would become more. No, no, no. (laughs) It's reckless from the start. So consequences come for them pretty quickly. One, Moomin Troll nearly dies. Two, Moomin Troll imagines that maybe he squashed the Snork Maiden with one of the boulders. Three, they go down the mountain a bit more and they find that Hermulan that was collecting insects and they've smashed one of his jars. Yep. He's not had a very good time. They've directly impacted him with their reckless behaviour. So they're a bit sheepish about it. They ask him some questions about whether he's noticed about the sky. And he said, I would never notice if the sky was spotted because all I care about is my specimens and my jar has been smashed and I'm not enjoying your company. So he's splashing his feet in a little stream to cool them off. But the stream's really shrunk. This is another one of the ominous things that's happening is all of the bodies of water throughout this second half of the book, seem to be shrinking. If there's much less water, he won't even be able to splash his feet. Moomin Troll says, let's leave him alone. I think that's what he wants. They carry on. They hear cries for help. Moomin Troll and Snufkin are all up for going to help. Sniff slightly less so. They're still all tied together. Hilarity ensues. (laughs) Moomin Troll cuts himself free and says, it must be the Snork Maiden. And he's right, it is the Snork Maiden. Sometimes dreams do come true, children. Yeah. She's trapped in a poisonous bush. It's got her by the tail. It's an Angostura, which is a real bush. It's a South American plant. Yes, but it's not a prickly one. This is true. And it's a medicinal one. They should be grateful. That's right. (laughs) 
<laughs> but anyway, it's got hold of the Snork Maiden's tail. So in sails Moomin Troll with his special pen knife. He slashes at the bush. It lets go of the Snork Maiden. He slashes again. It grabs hold of him. He cuts off his arms. He cuts off its legs. He's very, very brave. He kills the bush. Yeah, it's a full-on action scene. Right. And I think what's interesting about this is you can either read it as like a sentient fighting bush or you can read it as pruning a particularly difficult bit of nettles. Maybe she got caught on a plant and he's just like imagined this. Or at least they both imagined yeah. this because I think the Snork Maiden is just as actively imagining romance from the start. Oh yeah, she's into this story as well. She is also co-imagining this romantic story. A dramatic romance for the ages. She tries to help by chucking a stone. It misses and hits Moomin Troll in the tummy. And then Sniff goes, just like a girl. That's Sniff's opinion. It's, I don't think Tuve's opinion is because she's a girl. So Moomin Troll is triumphant. Snork Maiden swoons all over the place. Moomin Troll sort of puffs up his chest and says, I do that sort of thing nearly every day. And Sniff is about to go, I've never seen you do that. And Snuffkin's like, shh. Moomin Troll returns the ring. Snork Maiden's really happy about that. And then Snork Maiden's brother, the Snork, calls a very official meeting <laughs> in a glade. Yeah. Where he self-names the president of the meeting and the secretary and then like shouts down everybody else's ideas and doesn't listen to anyone. To have a sympathetic read of him, I think he's very anxious about the comet. Yeah. And he wants to talk about what they should do about it. But he wants to talk about it in a very specific way that nobody else talks. Yes. And anyway, the Snort Maiden comes up with a solution, which is obviously, if there's a cave, they should hide in the cave. Yeah. And then she's like, now we've got the solution. Let's build a fire, have some dinner and go to sleep. So then she gives everybody a job. She does some great delegation. She sends her brother off to get sticks. She sends Sniff off to get water. She sends Moomin Troll off to get flowers. And she asks Snuffkin to play her a song while she's like getting the dinner ready. Sniff can't find any water because all the streams have dried up. So they decide to cook the berries in lemonade and have a wonderful fruit soup. Sounds tasty. Yeah, it sounds good. Snork Maiden weaves them a mat out of grasses and everybody sleeps on that. So actually, this is the first time of many in this book Snork Maiden saves the day. But low key, like the Snork thinks he's in charge. Yeah. But the Snork Maiden gives off the impression that she's not in charge, but she absolutely is completely in yeah. charge. They go to sleep and they keep noticing that every time they look up at the sky... The comet's bigger. They keep walking the next day through the forest and they see a sign that both points out that there are village stores and also a party. And they're like, great, we could stop for some dancing. Snork's not having it. He's like, no, we really haven't got time. We need to get to the cave. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong in this moment. They come to the village stores, which are described as very good village stores. It's a beautiful little cottage with like a nice orderly garden and grass growing on the roof and a lovely old lady working in the shop, which seems to have almost everything they need. Everybody does a bit of shopping. Then they've got no money, but <laughs> the shopkeeper finds a way to give them everything they want without them feeling bad about it. They carry on to the party. Significantly, Snufkin considers getting some new trousers, but nothing can be as good as his worn-in current trousers. The shopkeeper has a good go at trying to sell them to him, though. She's like, well, these are the oldest trousers in the shop. If you keep them till tomorrow, they'll be even older. He says, I think I'm going to let these get older in the shop rather than with me. She's like, cool, in that case, everything's free. Well, she's like the perfect shopkeeper. She like takes everybody's exact desire and finds something that will fulfil it. They're like, where's the party? And she's like, I'll just follow the signs. 
And the party is this lovely scene with all these different kinds of creatures, some of which were mentioned in Flood. There are little creeps. Little creeps! (laughs) There are tree spirits. There are lots of little insects. And there's a grasshopper playing fiddle. But he's only playing like really old-fashioned kind of tunes and nobody feels that they can dance to them. So Snufkin like takes him behind a bush. This one is not poisonous. And they learn a new tune together. And then they come out like playing as hard as they can and everybody gets into the dancing. Moomin Troll dances with the Snork Maiden. Sniff finds someone to dance with. Sniff finds a little creep, which is his own size. That's right. Everybody has a really good time. Then they settle down to tell some stories and Sniff invites the little creep to tell a story. And she says, there once was a water rat named Poot. And they go, and then what happened? And then she goes, it's the end of the story. (laughs) Other people tell stories. They drink some more palm wine. They have some food. Everybody settles down to sleep. And then they wake up the next day and things are looking even more apocalyptic. The comet looks even bigger. They walk on until they find a beach. And there's something really wrong with the beach because the sea is gone. It's just all dried up. It seems like the comet's making things really hot because it's all steamy. And all the things that are beautiful in the water, like seaweed, is all dried up and smelly and horrible. Yeah, I mean, it's just about five years' time for all of us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is a book that feels very climate catastrophe, but it's another one that also feels very war. Yep. They have a conversation about what to do about it. The snork says they haven't got time to go around the sea, so they're going to have to go through the sea. Got to go through it! We can't go over it and you can't go under it. And so this is a moment when the story from the first half of the book of Snufkin going through the fiery landscape on stilts becomes suddenly incredibly relevant. There are chasms that they feel afraid to walk on and also like some of the sand is kind of like slippery and sinky. So Snufkin asks everyone if they know how to walk on stilts. And they're like, no, and he's like, I'll teach you. We can practice on the beach and then we can go. So everybody goes off in search of some stilts. Moomin Troll and Snort Maiden go off together and get very distracted and almost completely forget that they're supposed to be looking for poles <laughs> because they're having their little romance. That's what love will do, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's some more callbacks to the Moomins and the Great Flood. She asks... What was it like when it was flooded and how high was the water? And he's like, oh, about as high as that pole over there. And then they walk on. Then later he goes, did I just say <laughs> about as high as that pole over there? Aren't we looking for poles? So they go back and it's like one of those red and white poles that sort of indicate the unsafe areas of the beach. So they find two of those because those come in pairs. And they also find a plank, which is split in half, which is good for another pair. And they're like, we've done really well. And they go back to the beach and everybody's already practicing. Yeah. Clearly, they were not that quick. Snufkin explains that walking on stilts is like seven league boots, like you go faster because your strides are bigger. Everybody gets passably good at it and then they set off across the ocean floor. And some of them have got like more of an odd pair of socks or an odd pair of stilts yeah. than others. It's really ominous at the bottom of the sea. Sniff, of course, is in search of treasures. He finds a treasure in a sort of like sword in the stone type moment. He sees the jeweled hilt of a little dagger and pulls it out, keeps it. Interestingly, this does not come in at all. In the, I was thinking, oh, what's she going to do with this dagger later? She doesn't do anything with the dagger later. 
No, not everything is useful, right? And ironically, the dagger that feels like it's going to be the most useful of the things yeah. that gets picked up is the least useful. Yeah. Whereas the woolly trousers... Very useful. ...saved them from the crocodiles, yeah. They come across a shipwreck. It looks like probably quite an old shipwreck because it's probably been mouldering at the bottom of the sea for a while. It's like falling apart. And Snort Maiden falls into it in a very damsel in distress moment. And Moomin Troll gives a little shriek and hops in after her. Um, the present that he bought her in the shop, which is a mirror, so that she can admire herself. With a ruby on the back. So she, like, pulls out a mirror to make sure that she didn't break it falling into the shipwreck. And luckily it's fine, and she's just sort of, like, looking at herself in it. And she sees, behind Moomin Troll, in the mirror, something scary with tentacles coming towards him. Everybody panics, the octopus is coming toward him unstoppably, but then the Snork Maiden has a wonderful idea. She thinks about how sometimes at home she uses the mirror to like shine the sun in her brother's eyes to annoy him, and she's like, well what if I did that to the octopus, and what if instead of reflecting the sun, which now looks like a piddly little tiny thing in the sky, what if I reflected the comet right in the octopus's eyes? So she does that, it really works, the octopus is blinded and dazzled and retreats, Moomin Troll is safe and they have another one of these moments of, I would save you every day. And it's important to note that Moomin Troll is the damsel in distress in this moment. So they've reversed the roles a little bit. They have saved each other, which is actually a very equal attitude to relationships and one I can quite relate to. Yeah, everybody is getting really tired and more and more upset and the steam all over the place is making it so they can hardly see each other. They don't feel that it would be safe to pitch a tent at the bottom of the ocean, so they pitch it on one of the island mountains. Well, they don't even pitch it, they just sleep on the ground, and they take turns guarding each other. And then they carry on to the other end of the sea the next morning, and it's starting to look like Moomin Valley. We're on the home stretch. Everybody starts to feel a little bit more cheerful, and then they encounter a house troll. A house troll. Another member of the troll family that looks nothing like the Moomin. Moomin Troll greets him politely because he's a member of the family and passes on his mama's regards. And the house troll's like, I really can't stop. It seems like another refugee crisis. Like everybody is fleeing away from Moomin Valley because word has gone about that the comet is actually going to hit in Moomin Valley. So the house troll hasn't really got time to stop. He's biking himself away with all of his luggage and his baby. But he promises to send a telegram to the Moomins should he go past the post office and let them know that Moomin Troll and his friends are coming home. For people unfamiliar with what a telegram is, it's like an email, but much slower. (laughs) And yet this one goes really fast. Yeah, actually, it's more like a tweet. Or text. You don't write very long ones because you have to pay per letter. They carry on, they see all these refugees, like people carrying their whole houses in wheelbarrows, people who've like pulled up all the vegetables from their gardens and are fleeing. And Moomin Troll reflects, isn't it interesting that even though we're going to the bad place and they're fleeing the bad place, we're less scared than them? And maybe it's because we've known about the comet for longer and we've started to sort of get used to the idea they've also started to personify the comet and think of it as maybe lonely getting to know the comet is like getting to know your fear or your like your anxieties or your worries and so having sympathy for those things is a very therapy kind of thing Mm. 
Then we've got more omens of the end of the world. There is a plague of grasshoppers or locusts, which is very biblical. Wild Egyptian grasshoppers. Yeah. Which are basically locusts. Yes. And earlier on, we had a reference. I don't think we even mentioned it, but I think there was a reference to the story of Moses. Yeah. So the Snort Maiden says, where's your home then? Snufkin says, nowhere or everywhere. It depends on how you look at it which is a great line. Moomin Troll asks, haven't you got a mother? Uh, Snufkin says, I don't know. They tell me I was found in a basket. And then Sniff says, like Moses. And Snork says, I like the story about Moses, but I think his mother could have found a better way of saving him, don't you? The crocodiles might have eaten him. There is a plague of locusts. They eat everything in sight, all of the greenery. <laughs> and then they say things like, we must eat, we must eat, and then we have eaten. It's got dashes between the words. I sort of like took it to mean they're talking like kind of staccato, like, we must eat, we have eaten. Which makes them sound kind of Dalek or, or robots or sinister or insecty. But actually, they are pretty chill. They're pretty nice. They, they interact yeah, they per- perfectly fine. They just are doing their thing that they do, which is eat all of the leaves. So the carry-on... And they find that Snufkin's harmonica isn't working anymore because all of the steam has rusted most of the notes. And he still tries to play them a tune with, like, the two remaining notes. Yeah. And it's not very good. It's very sad, actually. Yeah. It's one of those, you sort of see it written down, and the full meaning is only really there for someone who can fully read, I think. These kind of moments, they, they actually pose a bit of a, a dilemma to a, someone reading this aloud to a child of quite mm-hmm. how to do it. There's like dashes where there would be notes. You'd have to make a little noise for each dash. It was higgledy-piggledy, but now it's like hig d d pig d d path d d wig which is very, yeah, like it's very sort of sad. They run into another Hemulin. And they ask him if he's related to the one in the mountains. And he goes, oh, yeah, it's probably some like distant cousin, but like we don't have a good relationship. I feel like Hemlins don't really like each other like because they all have their particular interests. And so they're not interested in people who don't have that interest. So this Hemulin collects stamps and that other Hemulin collects butterflies. And this Hemulin can see no similarity between those interests. <laughs> I mean, I'm with him, like, in a way, because it's like a butterfly is very different from a stamp. Right, but collecting is collecting. I also agree that there are two truths here. They're both true. Yeah. Like, they are completely different and they are the same. So this Hemulin's really upset by, like, the sort of, like, mass movement of people away from the crash site because he was just arranging his stamps. And then they took away the table from underneath the stamps and the chair from underneath his bottom and then the house from all around him. (laughs) And so all of his stamps are in disarray and he keeps saying, and no one's explained to me what's happened. And so Snufkin kindly tries to explain to him what happened. But whenever you try to explain to him what's happening, he doesn't want to know because it's not about stamps. Yeah, I mean, he's literally his house has been taken from him. And what's upsetting about that is how that affects his stamps, not how it affects him. And now here comes another apocalyptic event. It's a tornado, which seems to have also started in Egypt, maybe, coming after the locusts. And our top team of thinkers decides that it will be safer to be in the air than on the ground when this happens, which I don't think is true. No, but they they consistently make these kind of very, very basic (laughs) errors. Like, it's a good idea to roll boulders down a hill. Yeah. (laughs) 
they decide that what they need is a hot air balloon. And luckily, the Hemulin happens to be wearing a huge dress. The previous Hemulin wore a dress. This time it like explicitly says in the text they always wear dresses. So they ask the Hemulin for his dress. He says no. They ask him again. He says no. They forcibly take it off him and tie up the neck hole and the armholes and then all hang around the hem. Not great behaviour, guys. No, but I suppose if it's saving everybody's life... And saving the Hemulin's life, that's significant. Yeah. (laughs) Still, it's not great. The hot air balloon lifts up into the air. They're all holding around the hem. So there's not really a basket. They're all just kind of dangling. And this is one of those moments where, like I've put like in my notes, dress balloon, and then I put... I want pictures, exclamation mark. There's no picture of this moment. I think it's because it doesn't work. How the hell could it happen? Yeah, exactly. This is right. (laughs) But whatever. It's a storybook. It works. They ride out the storm. Everybody survives. Everybody's a little bit bedraggled. And finally, they're home. They're in Moomin Valley. They're walking toward the Moomin house. And now we get a slight... Shift in perspective, we go inside the house where Moomin Mama and the philosopher are in the kitchen and Moomin Mama is making a cake for Moomin Troll. It's beautiful, it's decorated with little bits of yellow lemon rind and candied pear and she's iced for my darling Moomin Troll all over it. <laughs> and she's made some ginger nuts and she asks the philosopher if he wants a ginger nut and he says it's nothing one way to, or another to me about ginger nuts but he eats eight. Yeah. And then he tells her, by the way, I think Moomin Troll's coming home because I can see him coming down the valley. Don't know if that interests you at all. And she's like, what? (laughs) Moomin Troll? At last! There's joyful reunion. There's a coffee party. They all have some coffee. Sniff spills his because that's what Sniff does. And then they all decide to take refuge in the cave, like the Snork Maiden said. They bring the bath. They bring the roses and the radishes that were in the garden. Moomin Mama's really annoyed. So the philosopher has told her, and I don't know how he knows, but as we've said, he also seems to be some sort of clairvoyant as well as a philosopher, has told her that the comet is going to land right in the middle of her vegetable garden. It's really (laughs) annoying because she just weeded it. She takes the radishes. Moomin Papa sort of like loads her (laughs) into the wheelbarrow with the bath. And then they say, come on, Hemulin. He's just been reunited with his stamps. He's really busy arranging them again and putting his watermark on them. But they're like, look, if the comet lands on you, all your stamps are going to get burned up. And so he hops (laughs) into the wheelbarrow with Moomin Mama and Moomin Papa pushes them all to the beach. That's right. They're being pushed in the bathtub by Moomin Papa. So, like, we can see that, like, whilst Moomin Papa is sometimes feckless and useless, you can get him to do backbreaking work and he will do it quite happily and jollily. That's actually a nice moment that's happened just before this as well with the stamps and the hemulin. Moomin Papa is impressed by stamp collecting. No, he calls it a hobby and hemulin gets really offended and says, it's my work. And he is impressed, like he's impressed by people's work. Yeah, and that is a nice thing about him. He gives the hemulin the same kind of respect that he gives the muskrat, who I enjoy that you call the philosopher. So they load everyone into the cave, they roll boulders over all the cracks, and then the last crack, here's another bit of good foreshadowing from the first half of the book, they use up the last of Snufkin's special underground fire oil. Yes. They imbibe it all over a blanket, which is going to like be <laughs> like a tent flap, and this oil is so powerful that nothing will penetrate it and it won't get too hot. 
Everybody makes themselves comfortable. The muskrat a little bit too much. Well, they had asked the muskrat to come and he said he wasn't bothered. But then when everybody's getting comfortable in the cave, they find him sitting in the corner and they say, oh, I thought you weren't going to come. And he's like, yeah, I was getting a bit hot. It was getting in the way of my thinking. (laughs) And then Moomin Troll's like, where is my cake? It looks as though the muskrat philosopher is sitting in a dish of some kind. (laughs) He's made himself comfortable on top of the cake and the cake is now all squashed and his fur is all matted and sticky. Nobody's happy about this situation, but Moomin Mama rightly points out that it will taste exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i not fully with Moomin Mama on this one, i got to exactly say. It's not exactly the same, is it? She squashed all the layers. I don't really want to eat a cake that's had a muskrat sitting in it. But you don't really like cake. That's true, but I do like the cream stuff. Like the gooey elements of the cake are the nicest bits and they are the bits that a muskrat bottom is going to ruin the most, you know. (laughs) Right, but it looks like an iced cake. So probably all the icing is on the muskrat bottom and then the other layers are probably (laughs) fine. I don't know. I would eat it. So they're getting comfortable. It's getting really hot. And then they realise they've forgotten someone. They've forgotten the silk monkey who we have not mentioned since chapter two. Yes, that's right. Moomin Troll bravely volunteers to go out there and save her when there's only about 21 minutes to spare and it's really hot out there. It's like being in an oven that's been turned all the way to the top and he calls and he calls for her and like he can't find her. He's just about to turn home and finally she answers and he's like, quick, there's no time. And she's like, what? Is this a fun game? And she, you know, she thinks it's one of these chasing games. And he's like, fine, chase me. Takes her hand. They run across the sand. They duck underneath the blanket. Everybody's safe and sound. Whew. And the comet hurtles closer and closer and closer and closer and then it just decides to like whiz through the valley and then out again to another solar system far away yeah it's like it comes so close to the earth but it still makes a humongous noise everybody in the cave is frightened moomin mama gathers all the children to her and sings them a song and puts them all to bed and in the morning moomin troll is the first one up he goes outside and it's not all hot anymore and Things seem okay and not on fire. And also, the sea is coming back. The end. I think that that has, like, again, some very explicit references to kind of war and evacuation. Everybody's secondary concerns do start to become unimportant. Mimi Mama accepts that she can't take everything from the house. Like, the Mm. Snow Maiden doesn't want a flower. Like, and so it's like, it's that kind of like when everything is taken away from you, what remains is the people, the personal relationships which I find very moving. I mean, like almost welling up just describing that idea, which makes this definitely very much a book about war or trauma, like mm-hmm. what comes after war and after trauma is how I think of that last chapter 12. And I think it's probably a good book to read if you're, if you're like in a place that needs to heal. The comet's a comet and the comet is trauma. The comet also seems to be fairly explicitly a bomb. Yes, a bomb, absolutely, yeah. And they warn the shopkeeper about it and say, do you want to come with us to the cave? She's like, it's all right, I've got a cellar. 
and all the little creatures have gone underground. It's like bomb shelters. It's the thing that comes from above that has been launched. And I guess also seeing the comet in the sky is like seeing the, the warplanes above you. Well, there's all these like big descriptions of what the sky looks like with the comet in it, which is a lot like how it looked during air raids all lit up and kind of beautiful but also terrible there's a really good bit about that in bombs on aunt dainty by judith carr about her and her dad going out during an air raid and going it's terrible but it is beautiful like isn't it right that terrible beauty is something that is kind of a repeated image almost in this i think it's a very funny book Mm. i think but it's also very poetic i think there's both those things in it yes Shall we talk about how Snufkin actually loses it when he sees that the sea is gone? To the extent that Moomin Troll chides him because you're always the happy-go-lucky one. Like, kind of, it's not okay for you. Yeah, I know. They've only met Snufkin relatively recently, but they've already assumed that he's always going to be the same. Yeah. You know, which is a very unfair thing to do to someone. There's a loss of beauty and there's a new beauty and the new beauty is kind of eerie and dark. Like the way that the bottom of the sea is described is very beautiful, but it's mainly like very unsettling. Snufkin's already been in bleakly beautiful places before yeah. when he was with the fire spirits seeing yeah. volcanoes. He says it was awful, but beautiful too about the volcano. That is what the comet is as well. In fact, that whole story is a foreshadow for the comet. So shall we move on to like all the other bits of foreshadowing and like discuss whether Snufkin is actually a prophet? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because with the Moses reference as well. So Snufkin is literally the baby that was found in the basket yeah. like Moses. So he is, I guess, implied to be a prophet. Snufkin foreshadows the beautiful end of the world. He sort of brings in all of these Chekhov's gun elements in part one, which become part of the resolution in part two. He also foreshadows the existence of the Snork Maiden and the Snork. That's right, yeah. We kind of first meet them in his telling, Mm. and then we properly met them in this half. I was thinking about the rocks when the boulders are rolled off the mountain, which is kind of like a bomb that's being thrown down at the the poor Hemulin. But that was almost foreshadowed in the first chapters when they get the pears out of the tree by dropping them down. Kind of like when you throw a pear (laughs) from a tree, you don't hurt anybody. But when you throw a boulder... Down a mountain. (laughs) I mean, in a way, that kind of evolution is, you know, that's war in a nutshell, right? Like you start off doing things that seem quite innocuous and then over time that builds up to something quite violent. I did some dangerous stuff like that. I lived on the top of a hill and the road, which was a main road, like sort of snaked around the bottom of the hill and then up towards our house. And the hill was covered in fields and sometimes they grew corn and sometimes what was left of the crop after they had collected the corn was turned into massive hay bales, which were (laughs) pleasingly cylindrical and would very nicely roll down a steep hill toward the road where the cars were coming if 11 12 year old me were to go out there and push them (laughs) so i did well because the thing is like this was a country road so mostly there weren't cars but when there were cars they were coming really fast (laughs) so i pushed a few of them down and like you know to no great effect and then i pushed one And I saw it start rolling down in a really satisfying, fast way. 
And then at the bottom of the hill, there was a stream, a bit like Moominland where I lived. And I saw the car go over the bridge and start coming up toward the hill. I was like, oh no, oh no. So like I pegged it down the hill really fast, cut my feet to ribbons, like threw myself in front of the hay bale and got squashed by the hay bale, but stopped the hay bale. Probably wouldn't have done much damage to the car. Do you reckon? Well, it would have stopped the driver from being able to see. May have crashed, yeah, that's true. And it was a very twisty road, and there were traffic accidents at the bottom of that hill on that twisty road every winter. Fair play for stopping it. So then I like patted myself on the back for saving the car. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you should have done. My mum did a, quite a moomini thing in her childhood in that she had a, a fossil collection, so quite Hemingway-like, and she decided to put it up a tree where like okay. her like den was. My gran was out mowing the lawn and there was a storm and all of the stones were blown from the tree and like nearly, nearly killed my gran. My gran took that as my mum trying to kill her. Like that was the way she viewed it. So that's why I know the story for it is a a traumatic family story often told at dinner parties. Don't they always? (laughs) Traumatic stories come out of dinner parties. We love to tell dark stories as if they're funny. (laughs) To be fair, I think the end of Comet and Moominland is a little a bit like that what I was describing with my family stories it would be like if they were recounting this event they'd be like do you remember that time Uncle Muskrat signed the cake <laughs> yeah when that comet nearly killed us you know <laughs> should we talk about that party which party not the coffee party the dancing party because I mean that's an interesting thing because there's those two moments in the last segment of the book where there is that kind of dancing at the end of time dancing at the end of the world it's like the orchestra playing on the deck of the titanic right very much like that (laughs) if the end of the world does become nigh and it's you can see it's coming in a couple of hours or whatever i'm gonna do some cool stuff definitely do (laughs) as much cool stuff as possible I wanted to come to it because we said in the moomins and the great flood that there are no more bums in these books and it's not true there's a bum there's a bum on a tree spirit a humanoid bum so maybe this is more of a theme bum spotting than we had previously thought and maybe we should keep looking out for bums we'll keep looking for bums i see now yes there is a and it's a woman's bum i think yeah it's a long-haired and slightly curvy in certain kinds of ways. It's probably another girl bum. And she's just like sitting, overlooking the party, seen from behind. I feel like you do quite often see boy bums in kids' books. Yeah. It's much rarer to see girl bums, I feel. Mm-hmm. When you get boy bums often in more comedic situations. For sure. Funny situations to do with bums, to do with pooing. Yeah. We don't always have to make boys' bodies funny. And girls' bodies... Mysterious and alluring. Objects of desire. It would be great for everyone if we balanced that out a bit more. I want to be an ethereal, mysterious creature too. (laughs) 
Shall we move on to the shoppings? We haven't said what everybody bought. Everybody gets a special thing, so we should say what they are. Sniff goes in really thirsty and wants a lemonade. Sniff is the only one who asks for something ephemeral. Yeah. Like, you drink it and it goes. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, that's half the problem. He's already drunk a lot of it before they find out that they maybe should have checked if they had money. Because that's an interesting thing. It's not that they don't understand money. They do, because they have obviously bought things in the past. Yeah. It's just they completely forget about money <laughs> until they've already bought the stuff. And then yeah. they're like, oh, yeah, money. Oh, Well, that's a bit like what it's like being a child, though, in a shop. It is. That is why the old lady is so kind to them. Yes. Because they're a bunch of children who are escaping from an apocalyptic event. (laughs) I mean, that's the other thing. Like, you know, from the old lady's point of view, who knows if the shop's going to exist in a couple of days. No, exactly. Why wouldn't you give your stuff away? You might as well give it all away. Yeah. So um, Snufkin asks about if there are some used trousers that he could have. (laughs) And she offers him the oldest trousers in the shop and he goes off around the corner to try them on. But he already doesn't think they'll be his shape. Yeah, he's very suspicious of of any new thing. And the snork wants a new notebook and she's like, how's blue? And he's like, oh, could we have another colour? Because blue reminds him of school. And I thought that was very interesting. This implies the existence of school within the Moomin world and also confirms that school is a traumatic event. And also that it's over. Like, none of them seem to be in school now. So how long did they go to school for? And then Moomin Troll comes in and he wants a present for the Snork Maiden. And he's like, have you got a tiara? And the shopkeeper's like, can you believe I do not stock tiaras? I'm so silly. But I have got something with jewels here. And then the snort maiden comes in and is like, I really like your looking glass in the front because I broke my mirror a while ago and I've been having to look at myself in puddles. And then the shopkeeper winks at Moomin Troll and brings out this beautiful mirror with the rubies on the back. And Moomin Troll winks back and is like, ha ha, I've got a present for you. And then he conveniently leaves, I think, so that she can have this private chat. Do you have anything in the line of a medal, like what generals wear or heroes? And the shopkeeper's like, would you believe I do not stock such a thing? How silly of me. But then she looks in the Christmas decorations and there's a star, which presumably usually hangs on a tree and it's got a little pin and... Uh, the Snort Maiden buys it for Moomin Troll and is like, here is a medal for your bravery and just pins it to his tummy, presumably in the fur. Let's hope it's in the fur. It's the only kind of jewellery that men folk at that moment are allowed to have. Oh, she's, she suggests to him a tie pin later, but he doesn't really wear ties. Well, thankfully. Well, he doesn't wear shirts. <laughs> he doesn't wear clothes. So we're segueing pretty smoothly into the romance here. So the romance between Moomin Troll and the Snork Maiden. In some ways, it's like very heterosexual. There are things for boys and things for girls, you know, and even the shopkeeper sort of affirms that, like, it's not silly at all to buy jewels for girls. It's what you should buy for a girl and all that stuff. But then, like we said, they put a twist on it in that Moomin Troll saves the Snork Maiden from a plant and the Snork Maiden saves him from an actual terrifying creature. They're both things with lots of arms, yeah. so it's kind of the same act is kind of done. Snork Maiden's way of dealing with it is more clever. 
You could say that's like women have a, a non-violent way of solving conflicts, but I also think it's more like Odysseus to me. It's more like mm. kind of outsmarting somebody. Yes. Maybe if they both had knives or both had mirrors, yeah. it would be totally equal. It still feels painfully straight. Yeah, yeah, no question. In a lot of ways. I, mean, I think they're both into it. They both play up to their roles. Yeah. And they both kind of enjoy that. Yes. At the same time, like, Moomin Troll is actively interested in the Snort Maiden's personality. Yes. It's not just about appearances. And, like, and she is, you know, very much more practical. She's got a lot of good skills. She knows how to start a fire. Right. She knows how to make medicines. She is a fully rounded personality. Who's into putting flowers behind her ear. Yeah, me as a young person, I didn't get that as much. I did think that like, mm. she was just about perfume and flowers and, and that. And it's only reading it as an adult that I fully can see that. That said, you know, we don't want to imagine a world where people can't be snort maidens or moomin trolls. No. We, want, we want to imagine a world where there are all sorts of different things that are worth aspiring to. The snore maiden does a similar thing to the silk monkey when she arrives with the boys in that she undercuts the competition and the toxic masculinity in a different way. The silk monkey does it by rolling her eyes and just not being interested. (laughs) Whereas the snore maiden does it in a much more ameliorating Sort of more soft skills. Like takes the meeting and makes it actually efficient and useful rather than a load of boys being annoying. I mean, they're both children as well. Yeah. There's certainly, there's no sexuality really in the Moomin world. There's romance. There's talk of marriage though. It's an interesting thing for Moomin Troll to already be aspiring to. I think that's also very interesting though because he does immediately sort of start having very romantic fantasies about her which isn't what boys are supposed to be like he is soppy and romantic and comfortable with it he doesn't see it as a a conflict with his adventuring side sniff is so awful to him about it though and that's sort of very true to life as well like when some boys are letting themselves be interested in girls and romance, the other boys are going to be like, "Ooh, so disgusting with your stupid right. girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's this weird thing where it's like it's implied to young boys growing up that it's kind of gay to fancy women, which is very <laughs> peculiar. I mean, obviously, it's fine to fancy every gender, but uh, it's particularly weird that interest in girls gets seen as kind of non-masculine or emasculating it's emasculating to be into a girl you're not supposed to show an interest in them you're supposed to impress them yeah but you're not supposed to care for them so we've met two hemulins in this book and we met one hemulin in the the previous book yeah that hemulin was annoyed about furniture being mistreated so that maybe was that Hemulin's special interest so shall we talk about Hemulins as autism or autistic characters then yeah why not (laughs) since i've introduced the idea of special interest well and because you know you have an autistic (laughs) co-host yes that's that yeah nina is 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 autistic i am dyslexic and uh peculiarly minded which means that we both bring different skills which is great So we've had it confirmed that Hemulins always wear dresses and that they seem to have like one special interest each and that they are always very upset when something 
interferes with their special interests. Something else that I didn't mention in the synopsis about Hemulin number one, Butterfly Hemulin, is that when they encounter him again, he's trying to categorise a flying thing with a red tail. Yeah, because they introduced the idea of the comet to him when they first meet him, and he thinks that it's a kind of insect. Yes, well, and now he's still trying. Because that's how he sees the world. Why is that big insect coming towards me? What is that big butterfly? (laughs) So butterfly Hemulin can only see things through the lens of butterflies and perhaps some other flying insects, but let's be real, he only really cares about the butterflies. I mean, that I understand. They are very pretty. But I don't think he's necessarily interested in their prettiness. No, I think he's interested in their categorization. <laughs> yeah. The taxonomy. Yeah. And I think the thing about the Hemulans as like autistic rep, I don't think they were intended as autistic rep. But also, and I'm allowed to say this because I am autistic, we can be quite annoying and pompous in certain social situations. You can't say it, but I will. I am not allowed to say anything, <laughs> and I, nor do I want to. I don't think of even Nina as pompous. But you, listener, might. <laughs> you could. You might. I'm quite pompous, and I'm not autistic, so... Yeah, so don't listen to Dave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a kind of social difficulty that comes with being singularly focused on what you're focused on. As a child, I got read as annoying and pompous a lot. And the learning to come off in a different way than annoying and pompous came to me later in life. He does actually deal quite well with them when they come down the mountain. And they have, like, smashed his jar and they have been doing (laughs) reckless behaviour, which has affected him. He's got a bump on his head. I mean, it's not good. Yeah, like, he holds his boundaries with them really well. He says, like, I'm not interested in talking about the sky and I'm not interested in talking to you guys. I'm just going to, like, ice my feet here, which also is like a form of self-regulation that he's practising. That's right, that's true. Yeah, he feels quite autistic in that way. He's also, like, doing quite well. I know he's set up to be, like, an antagonist and a grumpy person or whatever, but the Moomins, as they're passing, are quite respectful of his desire to be alone as well. They're like, should we not keep bothering him? I also want to talk about the way that they look at their, their interests as their work. Right. And I think there's two ways of looking at this. There's the anti-work way. Right. But there's also, this is something that they also do in like Montessori child rearing, is considering whatever the child is doing to be a valid form of work. Right. As someone who's obsessive about creating things, I'm anti-work in my politics, but I do call creativity work and it is work. It isn't easy and simple and it does require labour and admin. It's that it's important for you to do and that the work that you're driven to do is important and valid and deserves respect from other people. And people often don't consider what you're doing to be important until you're a grown person. Right. I think, yeah, work's complicated. Like, obviously, like, work under capitalism is bad, but also I think it's true that everybody works. Yep. Everybody is doing something important, and everybody is drawn to do something important. It's one of these, like, rubbish arguments against universal basic income is that people will sit around and do nothing. Right. And I'm sure that people who are burned out by the capitalist system will do that for a while. But I also don't think that you actually that's what would happen if you release the pressure. Well, the Moomin family are maybe what that would look like, right? They, yeah. they they don't worry about money, but they do worry about their interests. Moomin Papa goes, you know, men's stuff goes out to sea. Well, and they worry about people being safe and, and provided for. You know, it's not like nobody cooks. 
No. <laughs> or nobody cuts firewood. And at the beginning of the book, you know, when, when Moomin Troll and Sniff get the pears for the jam, they have fun doing it. They make it yeah. into a game. That is a kind of work. They're doing purposeful work. Yeah. 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 Shall we move on to our advice section? Yes. What would Snufkin do? Today we are taking a contribution from a community on Reddit that is known for the purposes of this podcast as Am I the Wretched Wretch? We will link it in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. So anyway, this question, this query is, Am I the Wretched Wretch for asking my stepfather to pay rent in a house that I own after he asked me to pay rent once I turn 18? I think this is an instance where Snufkin would disagree with you and me. So we're going to have to try a little bit harder to embody Snufkin. So in the longer version of this, for listeners to get a bit more context, the person in question was asked to pay rent when they turned 18. We know they're sort of 16, 17, but they own the house because it was given to them by their father. It was passed down to them. Their mum does not own the house. The stepdad was asking for the person to pay rent and didn't bring it up with the mum. It's that cliched thing of like, well, you're an adult now, you've got to pull your weight and pay your way. The stepdad has been living there rent-free for six years. So it's an interesting one because I think, me as a person, I think, yes, charge that stepdad, definitely. Oh, we're like, yeah, charge him rent, absolutely. I don't agree with capitalism, I don't really agree with rent. Or landlords. But we do agree with revenge. Yeah, revenge, <laughs> teaching a lesson to somebody that has got no right trying to, to do this to you. I think that Snufkin would agree with us that, that the person involved in the question is not a wretched wretch. That said, I don't know if Snufkin would understand any of the basic ideas within this like i think snufkin would be against landlords yeah because they're kind of like park keepers or policemen yeah so he doesn't like authority he doesn't like ownership either doesn't like ownership but he does own things and sometimes he talks of himself as the monarch of everything and owns everything so he's complex and that's kind of like a weird it feels a little bit dated that way that he talks the way of describing sort of like anarchism communism with like terms like monarch and ruler right is interesting and dated i think i think it's something that had to happen in the early days of those schools of thought because yes they were making sense of the world given the systems they already knew and this is always the problem with trying to imagine a different world yeah and we definitely see that all the way through the moomin's books that there are concepts that seem unmoominish yeah uh, like monarchs or colonial ideas which if they were written now they probably wouldn't include those ideas and so snufkin now might not talk about being the monarch of everything because monarchs sure do charge rent on their properties. He doesn't own a house. I mean, he does mm-hmm. own a tent. So I think he would say, no, that person is not a wretched wretch. But should that person ask the stepfather to pay rent? Snufkin would say no. We're going back to UBI, isn't it? Like, the thing is that when you're going to extend these radical ideas, we have to extend them to everybody, including the people we don't like and the people we think don't deserve it. You can't just charge all of the landlords rent for the rest of their lives to teach them a lesson for being landlords. But it's very human to want to. But as Nina and Dave, totally charge that guy rent. Absolutely.
at this stage in the podcast, we like to recommend some other texts or stories that contain the spirit of the Moomins within them. And so what's yours this time, Nina? Mine is by Ash Oakenthorn by Melissa Harrison, and it's about three characters, Moss, Burnett and Cumulus, and they are the guardians of the wild world. They're little tree spirits, like the tree spirits whose bums we have been discussing. They live in a tree in a back garden, and they hibernate all winter, and they're sort of in charge of looking after the natural world. And at the beginning of the book, two bad things happen. One, the tree gets cut down. Two, Cumulus's hand disappears. And so they go on a quest, a bit like the quest to the observatory, to like try and find some more guardians to talk about like what's going wrong with the world and why are our limbs disappearing. And it's got that same sort of like quest element as they go forward and it's got the same widening out of the world and it's still got these sort of apocalyptic, climatey nature themes. It's really good. The audiobook is also really, really good. Usually audiobooks for children, the narrator is often a bit annoying and a bit overacting it. Yeah. And sometimes musical interludes or sound effects are a bit annoying. This audiobook is perfect. And my recommendation this time, I feel like most listeners will probably be familiar with this text. It's Toy Story 3. The reason I chose Toy Story 3 is really to do with a particular climatic moment where everybody thinks they're going to be incinerated and they all hold hands and they are preparing themselves to all be burnt away and destroyed. But then just like with the comet, they are at the last moment saved. And that's kind of my favourite moments in stories quite often. It's when everybody kind of gives up and clings together. And it's that thing of like dancing at the end of the world is of like when everything's gone, mm. love, personal connections, that's all we've got in those final moments. For today's episode, you're the one who is choosing the spirit of the Pod Goblins hat. So another show that is got a similar style or theme or format to the one you're listening to now. I'm going to recommend Dragon Babies, which is a YA nostalgia review show. It's hosted by two sisters, and they go back through YA fantasy books that they read as young people and talk about why Ooh. they may be even better for adults. And they have some rubrics, and the one that made me want to recommend them here is they have a section called The Badass Lady Meter, where it started out nominating cool female characters from like fiction in the like 70s and 80s and maybe 90s where like the range of women and girls in particular kinds of fantasy books was a bit narrower when they did the farthest shore by ursula k Le Guin, they had to nominate look far the boat as the only lady <laughs> in the story right but now it's sort of gone into like people of any gender who are in a particularly, like, feminised role or feminine role. And I was thinking about that when we were talking about the Snork Maiden and the ways that, like, women are represented and the complexities of that and, you know, like, the archetypes that she does or doesn't play into. There's a lot of talk like that in Dragon Babies. Have they covered Jane Yolen's books yes. about dragons? Have they? Yes. I am going to listen. <laughs> I'm obsessed with those books and I uh, find very few people who've read them. Next week, we're going to be doing the first half of Finn Family Moomin Troll. But before we go, here are the tiny cliffhangers for next week's show. What happens when you put something 
in a mysterious hat. What do you do and not do in a thunderstorm? And should this book really be called Finn Family Moomin Troll? Until next time, try to take your meetings a little less seriously. Bye! Bye! <laughs>